The only changes with AI is if you don't adopt to it quickly, then the customers will change loyalty to somewhere else. So you've got to be investing in this stuff now, listening to the customers. And if you're not there, then you're going to fall behind. Hi, and welcome to Credit Shift. My name is Paul Sweeney. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at Webio. This podcast will be about how to embrace the digital future of credit and collections and all things AI and technology. Join us for the conversations that matter around credit and collections. Welcome to Credit Shift. This is a new podcast we've started to investigate the strategic issues facing the credit and collections business overall. We've noticed that there are significant changes happening in the world of technology in particular that are affecting the credit industry from head to tail and have the potential to really transform the nature of this industry. And we thought that it would be really useful to facilitate some higher level conversations, more strategic conversations about the kind of choices that might be hurtling towards practitioners in the industry. And so today I am super delighted to have a co-host in Dan Blagojevich. He's working as a decision science and customer analytics head at Optima Partners in Edinburgh. And previous to that, he was a senior data science manager at the Tesco Bank and has worked in risk at the Royal Bank of Scotland. And to back all that up, he's got various degrees, maths and stuff from Cambridge and the University of Edinburgh. So bit of a thicko, our, our Dan. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. We also have as our first inaugural guest, Chris Warburton, director of RO Strategy. That's RO Strategy, one word. It's risk operations strategy and also the host of the very successful and influential ROAR podcast, Roar, and previously principal consultant at Aram and director of collections at Barclay Card. And why I'm just so happy to have you guys here today is between you, you've got the background in the practitioner space, you've got background in consultant space, and You've got this broad exposure to all the trends that are hitting the industry. I, I couldn't think of two people who are better placed to kick off the conversation and start the conversation around the challenges facing the credit and collections industry. So if I could maybe kick off a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. And I think we're both lucky and cursed with the nature of the world that we're living in right now in that AI is going to be the big topic of the next few years. It's going to be one of those key ideas you've got to get your arms around. Chat GPTs on everyone's lips. Conversational AI is one of the main AIs that people are talking about. It's by no means the only AI that's affecting businesses today. And I don't want to get too caught up on that from the get-go. But I thought it would be interesting to maybe start out a little bit, Chris, if I could maybe throw the first question to yourself. Dan, feel free to jump in at any time here, is would you say it's fair to say that the credit and collections industry hasn't been as aggressive in adopting technology over the last number of years? There's some reason that it just hasn't grasped all the, the technologies that might be available to it. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I was looking at a, a stat 
earlier today around, I suppose, early adopters. And actually, financial services as, a, as an industry has actually been pretty good at adopting a lot of technology, and they've sort of at, up the forefront with the, with the tech industry. I think as a subset within that, it does feel sometimes like the, the credit and collections industry is almost like the poor cousin within, within that ecosystem. And I think, yes, I think sometimes it feels like we have to almost like wait for there to be a burning platform before you can put some of the new technology in. So it does feel like sometimes we're sort of like we, we come behind the curve um, and you can sort of you get to see things like legacy systems and sort of those kind of things versus, you know, being on the front foot in terms of some of the new techniques that are coming out. Although I'd say that that probably the the wider industry is probably pretty good, but I do think that the collections kind of kind of world can be can be behind the scenes somewhat on that. I, I, I would I would second that as I've Certainly, we observe a similar similar themes that certain functions within the, the FS sector are more entrepreneurial in that sense, as it were. So, when we look at uh, some of the commercial parts of a business, like a marketing function, they are more willing to adopt some of these uh, new technologies. And interestingly enough, I do also observe that uh, other parts of the world might be more willing to adopt new technologies, specifically in Southeast Asia, where we do see that even in the credit and collections uh, industry, there is more willingness to to adopt this kind of new technology than we do here in, in the, as, as it were, the Western Hemisphere. But I suppose, Dan, and one question though was like, as we went through the the pandemic as an example, when we were all sat sat at home, you know, looking at our processes, it felt like you know, that was an example of a burning platform that all of a sudden we did seem to like start to adopt some of these new technologies. So as an example, that was like almost like an area where we could almost like leapfrog things, which I think was, it was fantastic if you're in sort of th- these kind of circles in the sort of the collections world. But, you know, you know, will that continue, I suppose, because there's, there's to your point, Paul, there's so much stuff out there now and so many things going on now feels like the time where, you know, there is opportunity to make further investments to get even further ahead. I think why this was so interesting was, um, as someone who whose job it is is to kind of product to look into the like the future and go, you know, where does a product need to go and what kind of problems does it need to solve? A lot of them were when you look at digitization and digital strategy. An awful lot of them presume an API, like they presume that you're going to be able to get your data from from one application to another fairly fluently. And yet when you actually dig in, companies don't have that, those APIs available. They don't have the resources to put behind making those APIs available or adding things to an API. And it seems to be a real sign that that, that leap may not be as easy as, as, as a, a PowerPoint might tell you. Um, I, I don't know. Are you, are you seeing similar problems with kind of APIs across? Well, I mean, I think it's like how many of these new ideas are sort of built on sh- shaky foundations is for the way you're going. And, and you do see a lot, I mean, an awful lot of digitalization programs seem to be, you know, very presentational. Or they seem to be, you know, like I remember. I remember back in the world of sort of we're doing like Excel macros to automate processes. I mean, a lot of us will have seen it. You know, this sort of like it's taking our existing legacy stack and then putting automation that sits on top of it, and that's digitalization. Um, I think where you're going is if you really want to do true digitalization and get some of the data that you know Dan Dan you'd look at to to really do that, you've got to have a, a deeper level of 
organization a deeper level of infrastructure and particularly data infrastructure to really get that data in to then interpret it that can then then come out with sort of much more meaningful and more robust more controlled outcomes as a result and so i think i think there is a little bit of trying to do the the quick and dirty solution or the you know string and sellotape or string and sticky tape solution rather than actually doing the fundamentals and at what point do we need to trip over to then do that fundamental re-engineering that gives us you know two or three times the benefits than it would if we were just sort of doing stuff sort of superficially. I mean, that, that, that is very true, what you've described there, Chris. So often we see that there's a, a digital front end with an analog background and far too many uh, places still operate in, in that way. That's Yes, there is a shiny, a fast um, front end uh, that can interact with a certain uh, particular data stream. But unless all the data streams and all, all the infrastructures is set up to integrate fully, then then the whole system is only as strong as its weakest link. And we often see that, I think, still in, in the, the collections and uh, creating collections space that there is still a lot of legacy processes and almost legacy culture in terms of how things should be done. Um, now, whether that's changing with, Paul, to your point, the onset of, of COVID and what that's done, I think things are changing. Um, but I think one of the areas that might, um, I guess, slow down that pace of change is how, how fast the regulator moves uh, because the, the pace of change in the actual technology space is far, far greater than the regulators making uh, or being able to keep up. When we're talking about implementing AI, I think it's important to keep that stuff in, in context. I'm, I'm just thinking back you're making me smile thinking back to the early days of uh, of the internet you mean the, the the first the sort of like web 2.0 i suppose it would be and like and how many people would say well look, I've, I've automated my process and you'd type it into a web portal and it'd be a printer that would come out in the back of the office and then we were taking the printer out and then we were busy like then having someone basically typing that in and that was that was digital automation to so the customer it looked digital but in the background it actually wasn't it was actually you know it was actually manual to a certain extent in fact it was probably an extra process but that was sold in as digital, but I mean, but when we're looking at the new AI wave that's coming through, it's like, is that same thing going to happen? Or we probably actually need to focus on getting the fundamentals right, getting the data right, because that gives you the real automation, the real benefits and the real insights. I'm sure we'll talk a bit about that, that can actually come through as a result of doing it properly almost to a certain extent. But I suppose it's just worth us keeping that in the mind, particularly if we're purchasers. It's not about the way it looks in the end products. It's about the data underneath, the underlying data underneath it and trying to get that right. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I mean, obviously we say we've prejudiced opinion about it in that we have a belief about how it should be done, et cetera, but it's very painful um, like to, to, to go deep in a system and, say, okay, we're going to re-architect this and we're going to make a real big commitment to this. And I think maybe um, something has to shift maybe in the industry's thinking about the role of credit and collections in the overall company's brand or in its relationship with customers. Because um, the, the, the I can't see somebody making a, a big strategic commitment to like, digitizing credit and collections and doing that big two-year project to dig out all the systems unless it's really strategic um, to them. And and the, the kind of words that we've been using up to here, words like legacy systems or the culture, or these are all like 
strategic issues. It's it's when the 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 COVID came along and we all had 24 hours to figure out what to do. 95% of everyone was like had something ready the next day. Like they were ready to go within four days, no doubt, the biggest companies that we saw. And that tells me that it's, you know, everything's doable. It's is there a real desire to do it? Like, is there a real impetus to do it? I mean, it's certainly true that uh, when we look at senior executive leaderships around the place, they don't see credit and collections as as the, the flagship area there where investment's needed. It's usually something around marketing or customer experience, uh, which is more uh, focused towards, as it were, the good times. Um, we are in a very different environment, obviously, with the cost of living crisis. So I think there will be more focus on on investing in these processes and these areas of, of an organization that maybe we've pre- we previously had. An interesting observation, you mentioned there that, that organizations had everything set up within 24 hours of some, some kind. Um, I know from hard experience that a lot of that was putting literally tens of people on the ground to actually manually build some processes to, to be up and up and running. So can it be done? Yes, it can be done overnight, but there, there is there is a cost associated with it. Um, so businesses just need to, to be uh, uh, willing and accepting of the fact that there will need to be significant investment and over a period of time, and it will require focus and um, commitment to it. So not just give up when the times get tough or some other priorities come up. What point do companies look at growth? I mean, so it feels like there's been a, an awful lot of focus on growth, isn't there? And almost like culturally, we're focused on how do we grow, how do we get bigger. I mean, sort of that's that was the '80s and the '90s versus almost like run, which is like how do we make sure that the business we got is operating stably and then get it more efficient and then do more with it? And is it is it shifting from growth to run? Do we need to do we need to shift it more in that way? It certainly felt like it shifted that way in in COVID, I suppose what will happen now is sort of, it, it's sort of over, as people would say, you know, are we going to go back to this growth mindset, which is very attractive for people, or do we actually need to invest in the, almost like the run mindset, which actually can make things better for people and our existing customers? Mm. I, I think, uh, Dan, you, you might have some views on this. Um, in terms of the message that's resonating at a senior level, in terms of, Hey, we got to do X for this part of the business. What kind of message seems to be resonating at the senior and board level of companies? So it is very interesting what you say about growth versus sustain. Uh, that is still definitely present. The whole notion of how we measure economic activity through GDP itself shows that, that growth is ingrained in our in our mindset. Um, at executive level, it still is the case that's businesses are looking to invest in areas that will translate into growth, whether it's the growth of, of a customer base or or growth of customer engagement. It is still very much the mindset. Um, I am seeing some early signs that that is shifting again with, with the cost of living crisis towards helping customers who are already with an organization manage their money and not get into financial difficulties. It's still early days, I think, uh, but I can see that businesses are starting to look at their available resources and start investing in those areas. Uh, whether that will move into uh, things like uh, conversational AI and use of AI in a customer-facing 
environments, I think uh, the, the, the jury's still out on that one. Would you say there are any particular characteristics or things that are stopping the industry being good innovators, like practices, mindsets, ideas that are lodged in the industry that you think might be stopping the industry from innovating? If I may, I think the, the very first one is fear of, uh, of something bad going wrong and leaking into the press. There is that, that, that is definitely ingrained in, in leadership that there's risk aversion towards investing in technology that might uh, uh, have detrimental impact even to a single individual. And that's, that's in, in a way, that's good that, 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 that the customer duty exists, but it is stifling a lot of uh, entrepreneurial thinking uh, in a way that I, I don't believe it should. There are certainly ways of uh, uh, deploying advanced AI in a carefully controlled and gradual manner uh, in, in a way that will not cause any customer detriments. And I know that from the, the work that I've previously done in, in, in several places. So I think it's that fear of, oh, what if something goes wrong? Um, that, that's, that's really stifling even early discussions and nipping some of those uh, thoughts in the bud. I don't know, Chris, if you've observed something similar or something different. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree on that. I think you know, fear of fear, fear of something going wrong. So fear of the media, but then also, I mean, which is also reflected in fear of regulation as well, or being offside in terms of regulation. So they're super cautious around making sure you're onside of regulation. And certainly, certainly in the UK, but in most places, the regulators take an increasingly, um, you know, uh, increasing oversight uh, and uh, over over the over the business as well. So so that's becoming a, you know, almost like an industry in itself. Just making sure that you're on on side with that. Um, I do think I do think investment and where the invest where investment funds are. I think it becomes a bit sort of self perpetuating and sort of trying to get investment for particularly the collections recoveries industry, but you know all the the operational industries because it's become so contrained and it's seen as being a cost rather than necessarily being a growth engine. Sort of at that becomes self perpetuating over a longer period because you fall behind, so therefore you need to have workarounds. You struggle just to get workarounds, so therefore you fall behind, and your your infrastructure just gets gradually worse and worse. And so your so then time becomes an issue, and so then you don't have the time to think about the new things because you're constantly fixing issues. So at some point we've got to almost like break the cycle. How do we break the cycle? Get some investment, um, you know, start to get the data infrastructures right that can allow you to then have much different conversations, um, and making sure that's getting recognition within senior management within companies. So people are saying, "Hey, look, this is this this is a great job that these guys are doing. They're really helping support customers." Uh, I mean, we've come a long way, but I, I think there's still a long way that we could we could go, and I think it could, you know, be a much different conversation in terms of some of the innovation. That's out there. I do think that the whole angle around customer support and vulnerable customers, customers in financial difficulties, has been a been a really big help for a lot of collections firms because the regulators mandated it. Um, you know, it's put a lot of pressure around cost, but digital and digital infrastructure is one of the ways you can address that. So I think in some way that's actually helped departments actually get investment in some of these areas. But as I say, I think there's still a long way to go. Smiling to myself, Chris, that. That all resonates with me. Um, I, I think that description of a vicious cycle is uh, something that we see all the time. Um, um, and I, I guess the question is, like, if you're a leader, you probably recognize that and, and you see it. How do you turn that vicious cycle into a virtuous cycle? Where, where can you 
stick your shovel in there and kind of turn the wheel a different way. I don't know if you you've seen any any companies that have been able to turn that wheel more effectively than others. Some of them do, um, and uh, you think. I can think of some companies that seem to be just much further ahead in terms of making that investment around customer treatment on the back end piece. And it does it does mean they're not constantly chasing their tail trying to fix things as much as being ahead on it. Um, you know, certainly yeah, certainly starting with a clean slate makes a huge difference as well. I'd also say that. So you see it much more in sort of the fintech kind of area um, because they don't have to worry about, you know, the system that was there in like opened in 1976 or 1980 or that kind of process because they're only they're only targeted a particular segment of the population. You know, it's all digital. They've got a new tech stack, those kind of things. I think that those are the areas where you sort of see it done better and everyone else is sort of gradually getting there to, to a lesser or greater extent, I think. Um um, it is it is gradually getting better, but I think you know some some places just there's still a long way to go. I, I think that's a a great kind of lead into the next kind of major topic today, which is I I think that that big that change that having to face a big change like the COVID change there, a similar kind of quantity of change is facing companies in the area of AI and. I think, Dan, why it's so interesting to have someone like yourself here is with the background in data, uh, getting the data, access to data, the whole data journey, great AI needs great data. I I don't know, have you seen anything in the last three months that is like uh, really telling a story about how companies are going to react to this chat GPT conversational AI revolution that's kind of hit the world in the last six months really but really last three months has just been bananas altogether completely so i guess it is interesting that we we talk about chat gpt in the in the the form of uh, artificial intelligence whereas really what people mean when they talk about it is artificial sentience uh which we're far far from at the moment so chat gpt like like all of its predecessors is still essentially a collection of algorithms, a very large collection, I, I grant that, but it's it's still trained and 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 validated in the good old fashioned way like all, all the data science solutions that existed before it. Um, it doesn't learn on the go. It's not an all seeing eye that's that has its own mind and can can adopt and change with uh, with new information. It's still a set of rules uh, and decisioning logic that just it takes a different path depending on the data that it uh, consumes. One of the areas that that's, I guess we often talk about in this space is, okay, the, the fairness and the ethics of, of things that something like ChatGPT might put forward. We rarely ever talk about the ethics and fairness of HI, i.e. human intelligence. Um, so as, as uh, sometimes I point out, the only black box in the room is the human brain. Uh, everything else is fully explainable and anything that comes out of ChatGPT or any other machine learning algorithm can be written down as a set of mathematical operators or logical statements. So I guess the point there being is that we shouldn't be scared of, of this technology. Um, it is assistive. I don't believe it's substitutional. Uh, if we look at history of, of all technology, it's always been assistive rather than substitutional. So I think that will still be the case with ChatGPT and other conversational AI tools. Um, 
it's the the genie's out of the bottle. It's here to stay. So I don't think there is a way for for, for regulators to, to stop it or ban it in any shape or form. So it should be embraced, uh, but it should be used in a controlled and carefully considered manner, including collections and recoveries. I think it certainly has its place. Um, and I think the the main area that will need some address or redress is the regulator getting on the front foot uh, to work with organizations to define a core set of principles and, and, and a paradigm within which within which that technology is being used. Uh, I certainly get asked a lot by a range of clients as, am I going to be left out of a job and are you going to be left out of the job? So uh, our customers all of a sudden going to start getting unfair treatment um, to all of which the answer is no. So I think there is a lot of uh, hype that will subside over time, um, but we should encourage everybody to think quite carefully about where things like ChatGPT can can add value. And the answer is it can be used in pretty much every part of a customer lifecycle and a customer journey, including collections and recoveries. Chris, are you seeing you've got, again, that wide exposure across the industry? Are you seeing... Uh, whether it's ChatGPT or other kinds of AI, are you seeing a, any kind of more um, aggressive adoption of this than you would have previously seen of other technology shifts? I would say that not in terms of adoption. I think there's an awful lot of aggressive excitement about it. <laughs> um, so because these things often take time to time to go through. I think definitely, um, you know. I've been talking about it more than probably all of the other technologies that have come through. Um, it is like magic when you see it. I mean, it, it really is like magic when you see it, although it's not maths. It's not magic, it's maths, I would say. So just to, to your point, Dan. Um, um, but yeah, I think I think there's definitely an excitement around it. However, I'd say there's also a bit of a fear around, largely from people who don't understand probably the, the maths behind it, is a fear is like, uh, is it going to overtake my job? How do you make sure you got the right um, treatment? Is it stealing IP? And so there's it's coming with it around all the things that we don't necessarily understand in detail, a little bit of concern around it, which I think is uh, over the last sort of month or so probably got a little bit of a larger noise probably than, 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 than you definitely saw that in the media getting more noise. Um, so I think it's, you know, I think it's excitement. I'm not seeing a huge amount of sort of direct adoption yet. I think people are looking for that use case um, to really sort of turn the key on it. And I think it's being moderated to a certain extent by fear that's sort of in, in, on, the, on the sidelines at the moment. Um, however, I'm, I'm kind of with you, Dan, which is I think I think it is applicable in many areas, particularly as an assistance technology where it can provide extra guidance. So I sort of like it can take away the burden of me doing some of the things I would, I would normally do. I don't have to worry about that so I can concentrate on other things. And I think that's the way I kind of see it, almost like in that mini helper kind of frame to really sort of help me, you know, be more productive, essentially. Completely. And I think, if anything, it's the customer adoption of this technology that will force the hand of companies, as we've seen with other technologies. It's if, if we actually observe something similar in a very different sector, which is in the health sector. And so patients come to GPs with a transcript of a chat GPT conversation and say, here you go, please prescribe this, that or the other. So I think something similar might be heading our way in terms of credit and collections industry that the actual consumers, customers themselves will start coming to to, to telephone conversations or or the, uh, the the CSRs armed with, say, a transcript from a chat GPT or even <laughs> typing in as they as they speak. 
into into that kind of assistive technology. I mean, I think an interesting question, I, I was chatting with someone on LinkedIn about this, which is at what point does do, do companies, if they use that, to basically maybe save resourcing, say, for example, in the servicing and answering some of the simpler questions in the background, do they use that to, to save cost? Or do they use that to then reinvest in technology? Do they use that to reinvest in, you know, upfront service that might be that this two-way customer-facing service and invest in that because that adds value, more value to the brand? Or do they use it just to sort of deliver more shareholder value? And I think that's going to be that's going to be interesting to watch how it gets adopted, how it gets used, and how that sort of flows through operational processes. You kind of hope, even linking to the conversation we had at the start of this, which is, it's a good opportunity to to invest, uh, make savings to invest in you know better data, better customer journeys, those kind of things. And this is a way of doing that in some ways, rather than just taking money out of the business. One of the things that um, I've been following across industries, not just in the credit collections or even the finance area, is that this move uh, for large language models like ChatGPT is they're much more like the move to cloud than they are um, an adoption of a new kind of point solution. It's one of those transformation moves where you either stayed on premises for 10, 15 years, or you were moving to cloud. And then your idea was that I'm going to do my integrations in the cloud and it's going to give me kind of flexibilities going forward um, and transform the business by going to the cloud. That's the kind of conversation that's happening uh, in in the wider area of of LLMs, it's being looked at as this is like the move cloud. It's it's a big infrastructure move, and I think that to your point around the assistance, um, Microsoft assistance, and the every company will have some form of assistant embedded into their product that's going to help an agent, a supervisor, a manager do their job better. I, I don't know if you've seen the videos of somebody. Um, speaking to an Excel sheet and the Excels are automatically generating the formula and the pages to generate the kind of calculations that the person wants. And I I think that's the thin edge of what we're going to see going forward. It's like, I'm just going to literally tell the application to do something or ask it, can it make something for me? Can it generate something for me? And that's where the transformational aspects are kind of there in the future to be real and not that not that far in the future like you know the end of the year you're going to see some pretty crazy capabilities but the data won't be there like the company's own data that they want to make these decisions about and that they want to innovate with they don't have that flexibility to to mess around with it if you know what i mean so it's it's that that's a really interesting uh, uh, actually point that you've made and maybe we'll kind of just segue into that so uh, this this generative nature has has existed to date in terms of point and click functionality drag and drop functionality so if we think about lots of modeling uh, software and, and programming software you can drag and drop things onto a canvas and it generates code in the background and so that that kind of technology has been around for quite some time now, as I'm sure both of you have used and, and seen lots and lots of times. What's changed now is that you can do that interactively without necessarily having to 
drag and drop things. You can actually speak and interact with, with a piece of technology to do that for you. With regards to the data that you've just mentioned, I think the whole notion of generative AI is, is I think, the big, the crux of what's, what's about to change. Um, and actually what I'm not seeing at, at all in, in any of this discourse is what will happen when the generative AI algorithms and the models need to get retrained in three, four, five years time. And they're actually being retrained on its own generated data because we just won't know what's in the big wide world, what's actually been generated by human behavior, human interactions, and what was generated by um, the AI itself. And to me, that is the biggest risk that we need to face into, that vicious circle of AI learning on its own generated data. I, I'm smiling away, Dan, because of the um, the use of synthetic data recently is kind of leading to increased hallucinations in, in software. Um, and, you know, we, again, we have a prejudiced view about what we think the best kind of data is and the best kind of data is the real world data from real world conversations that you're able to uh, gain access to and analyze with customers. And and the second thing was that idea of drift, model drift. So if models over time, as, as, as culture changes, as the way people speak and use language changes, as the product names changes, those models will have to be rejigged, right? They'll have to be retuned. Um, and that's something that's going to have to be looked after. And then the third thing about, well, do you know whose data this was trained on in the first place or continues to be trained up on uh, will become a matter of, uh, well, definitely in the EU, you're going to have to know where, you know, what your data was trained on. Did you have access rights to be trained on that data? Were permissions in place for that training, et cetera? That, that will be a, a major concern, I believe. Interesting concept these almost like suboptimal feedback loops right and if you think about into the future around let's say an operational process it, you know do you need to keep a group of you know almost like champion challenger agents let's let's say doing the process the way they did and they're doing it as a human would be and that's how you expect the machine to do it do you need to do that just to have the the challenger to the ai to basically retrain it in the future and it sounds like the answer to that is almost like yes you do because otherwise it's just it's going to go off into some other suboptimal sort of solution rather than you, you need that gold standard to keep trending it back to something Com completely having that frame of reference is fundamentally important uh, if that frame of reference moves then then we are not hiding to nothing it does go back into the initial piece that around uh, now we talk about fairness of AI, but what about fairness of, of human decisions? So we shouldn't forget that the data that we train algorithms on today, that that data has been generated by processes which have endemic embedded in them some form of unfairness and bias. So it's it's not just do we have access to data, yes or no. It's what coverage do we have with that data? Um, are there any protected groups who, who don't have the ability to generate that kind of data? Uh, do we have access to their data? Uh, so the, there's a whole, the, the whole notion of principal data design doesn't go away just because we are applying an advanced cutting edge large language model. The same principles hold, in, uh, hold whether we're building a, a good old fashioned 
uh, regression model or whether we're trying to build uh, the next next iteration of ChatGPT using uh, 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 reinforcement learning. The same principles still hold, maybe even more so actually. The, em- the importance of having a principal data design are even more important. Um, now the challenge there becomes is okay who's who's training these models? Are we relying on on third party organisations? Are we building in house teams? Um, and I think that's an area where businesses need to start thinking about investing into their own capabilities, not necessarily to start training Bards and Chat GPTs left, right, and centre, but to have sufficient internal capability and know how in order to curate and and critique. The, the use of those algorithms. I mean, if I might ask a question, do you think um do you think do you think we're going to see that in terms of like having more group of groups actually just specialising just in the data over and above what we have now? I know we have data science teams and those kind of things, but it's almost like the governance around that feels like that needs to be made much stronger than we have today, and it feels like maybe that's a theme going forward. I mean, technologies are built on top of each other, and maybe we need a, like a, almost like a new department around data governance that, that does it in more detail than is being done today to basically address some of these. And not, not, not almost, it is happening. So in, in, in a number of large UK banks, that, that is already happening. So new teams are being set up in the compliance functions generally. Uh, that do look specifically at this. No, they're still very small teams, uh, one or two individuals, but they are, they are, it, it is, it is happening as we speak. And a lot of the work that I do is, is, is around advising uh, how best to go about setting up those areas and what, what the key initial priorities should be. So you're very right, Chris, yeah, that, that's definitely on the cards. Well, I, I think that's a, a great place to land here. Um, I'd just like to try and maybe gather a couple of the thoughts uh, from this with the, now that you've raised the issue, one of the strategic issues is who runs this? Like who does a, a CEO say, okay, hey, we've got this um, train coming down in the future. It's AI. Um, there's a subsection of it, chat GPT, conversational AI. Um, how does a CEO start thinking about where those rules lie and where those structures need to change to start progressing that conversation. Do you have any insights from that, Dan, if you were to say, hey, here's three things that I've seen that I think if, if you're not doing now, definitely start start looking at. So I guess that, yes. Yeah, so there's, I guess there's two aspects of that. One is, is who's doing it. And then the second, I guess, is where they sit within an organization. Um, Certainly, it feels that having a centralized function that has dedicated resource and focus of attention to to this uh, would be my my initial recommendation. So rather than have it federated across the business, have a centralized function that's that's uh, tasked solely with that. Uh, uh, I guess most organizations do have a data science team or function of some kind or analytics advanced analytics function. I think that that's that's already in existence. So I would see this area sitting at the juncture of advanced analytics and a data function in the organization, uh, uh, maybe with a dotted line into something like a compliance function. But it does, it is, it is an area that needs its own team, its, its own uh, budget or, or funding of some shape or form, uh, and possibly a, a reporting line that goes directly into the CEO because of the, the importance of this the accountability ultimately needs to, to rest with with a new individual, a new person in in, in an organisation. Um, 
I would also say that maybe finally that there should be more of a link up with external bodies like the regulator. So in much the way that, for example, the treasury function has direct links into the PRA, I think this is an area that in the future should have direct lines of communication or direct lines of engagement with the likes of an FCA. Thanks, uh, Dan. Chris, have, have you any, um, given the kind of companies you see, do you have any advice for them on how they might start structuring their thinking around AI adoption? And I, I'm more from an operational uh, side of things. I mean, I do think it's worth looking out for what are the, the new use cases. Um, I, do, I do think, for me, it really comes down to making sure you've got the right data uh, and making sure you're capturing data, making sure that data is being structured. Um, you know, from an operational point of view, I think every single conversation we have is actually data gathering. So, like, how do you actually gather that data? Um, how do you then make sure once you've got the data, is it structured in a structured format that, you know, that, you know, Dan, people like you know yourself or the t- or the teams you interact with can then actually do the analysis around it. So, so there's quite a long way to to sort of go to do that. I think thinking about it as data rather than thinking about it in terms of processes, I think is probably a bit of a leap of faith that we're going to have to make because if you don't have the data, you, you don't get to access some of these some of these new technologies and play at some of these new uh, these new techniques that are out there. So I think that's. If there's anything, I'd say that's probably the one thing to think about. It's like just start to think of it as data rather than process. And where is the data? How are you using it? And then hand it over to, to experts like, you know, self and Dan, just around, well, then then how do I use that and bring meaningful sort of insights that come out from it? Oh, that's great. Uh, from, from my own point of view, I, I think um, sometimes we don't, as, a, as leaders, always understand the transformational impact of something um, and its potential. Like you're always looking for what's the big lever, like it's eking out the small daily percentages and getting there is that's your meat and veg. That's what you have to do every day. But you're always looking for that. What transforms this business, what brings it to the next level. And I just think that when you see the amount of applications now that are asking permissions for, hey, we'd like to record your conversations. We'd like to, um, would you like all your Zoom calls to be in this business to be managed and kept and analyzed? Uh, Tie it with your email, tie it with your other communications. I think that if all the communications in a business start getting connected and automated and are addressable and analyzable, I think a lot of things start to change. Like I think a lot of data starts to come out and a lot of hidden opportunities kind of arise. Um, so I, I'm, I'm keeping my eye open for how much automation happens through the AI. Like what can I actually fully automate and then what happens next to the data? And I, my suspicion is, is that once we have all the data from conversations, something else is going to happen. Another level, another order of change will happen. Um, so that's my suspicion about the future. Um, and I think that, that the parallel to that is when all the data went mobile, like when people put all their, uh, their, their banking apps into their mobile phones, banking went mobile and banking changed like all of a sudden like we've got all these closures of all these high street um uh retail propositions and these growth of the the revolute like just as an example in ireland 
revolute. I think, I think it's like, uh, is it a million people have revolute now in Ireland? It's, it's some crazy number of the total population because there was poor local digital um, alternatives. The banks weren't there with the kind of uh, services and digital services that people wanted. And when they came from another provider, there was this huge shift, like this massive shift. And that shift to digital and mobile, then just even recently, it was uh, people being able to take their funds out of like Silicon Valley Bank so quickly in that day that it, it was actually a systemic risk that they never saw. Everybody said, oh, bank is closing. Like an hour later, everyone had moved their money. Like that just wouldn't have happened in the past and might have given them time to manage it. So I, I think that there's an opportunity. I think there's a similar sort of shift going to happen here with um, with AI and conversational AI. And I think that the idea of setting up those teams and structures and what's where's the data going to come from, I think companies really have to like really get into this pronto before it kind of changes. Even what you just explained, though, is that not that really comes down to the customer at the end of the day. The customers are still there and the customers are still human. And the trend is, I mean, in this example, they wanted, you know, telephone banking or they wanted digital banking. And it might be that they want to interact with, you know, their services in a different way. And that's a customer journey. That's about the customer. The customers are still there no matter what we use. And the only changes with with AI is if if you don't adopt it quickly, then the customers will change loyalty to somewhere else very, very quickly. So you've got to be investing in this stuff now, listening to the customers, and then getting the data, I think, to then be able to then put these processes in place that the customers want. And that's almost like, that's the constant that goes through it is, what do the customers want? Will they adopt it? Will they not? And if you're not there, then you're going to fall behind. That That is so true. And it goes back to the the NHS example as well, where people, people are starting to use uh, technology and actually take it into their GP practice is so completely right. It's the customer who will drive uh, the direction of travel and actually companies that get left behind will will, will feel feel the full force of that. Um, and yeah, the, our ability to stitch data together is so much greater now. It's it's both in terms of the breadth and the speed with, the, with which we can stitch together very, very disparate and diverse data sets is, is mind boggling. Um, it has come with the onset of cloud, has to be said, but it, it does put more emphasis on having that rigorous uh, uh, data management process in place, uh, not just from a governance perspective, but actually from the data integrity perspective as well. And actually having some some good breaks in the whole system so that it, it, ultimately we can resort to a more, uh, I don't want to call it manual, but say more uh, a human control process, so we don't have things spiraling out of control. Um, I think that that's 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 going to be quite important as well. Well, I think another good point to raise is BCP or business continuation plans, which is a little fear I do have around uh, AI. Is is if if we become so reliant on one thing, what happens if it goes away? What happens if the model gets broken? And what is our contingency plan or a fallback option as a result of that? And so, so we don't become so reliant on one technology, and it becomes, you know, the route for the for the business. And you sort of saw that through the pandemic is that you do have other options to be able to do it, albeit not as efficiently, but you you can actually react to things, and you're not 
you know you're not just like a, a one-trick pony as, as you'd kind of say as well so i think that's that's also important that i think is important not to get lost in all the excitement that you know i get excited about as well i'm 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 going to be the world's worst rapper upper guys and go back to your point patan about adoption uh, on the customer side it um I, i'm just hearing that i think it's one in five people have played with chat gpt um, I'm getting daily examples of people asking ChatGPT to do something like, can you compare this with something else and tell me how I can get a better deal? Or if I'm owing this amount of money, how can I get Y from this company or what's the best way to do it? And I think once people start showing each other like, oh, and I know I think like this is how how consumer behavior spreads. As I show you, you show your friend, you come home, you show your mom or dad, and then they go, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And now you know. And within a year, people are like, have their proposition when they come to you and go, I, this is what I'd like to enable. And I know you guys do it because you did it for somewhere else. And it, it might be interesting to keep track of um, simple chat GPT driven behaviors that customers are using, I would not be surprised to see people using it for response letters to companies or response emails to companies. I send you an, an email saying, hey, you know, we're waiting a payment. I would not be surprised to hear customers going, hey, what's the best way to write a letter back to a utility asking for X, Y, or Z? Um, yeah, just by no, example. Definitely. And that goes back to, to my, my biggest concern with this generative AI process is that customers will be, individuals will be asking ChatGPT and the likes for advice. That will be driving customer behavior. That customer behavior will then feed us as, as another data asset into the pool of data in which generative AI is being retrained. So the danger is, it's back to my, to, to the point we were discussing earlier, is that there is a big risk there that the generative AI will start learning from its own processes and its own way of thinking. And that is where I see the biggest risk of, of something like this. Um, I'm not seeing a lot of that in the discourse at the moment, maybe because it's early days, but it is one to be very, very careful about. I, I had a name for that in the past, Dan. Um, I call it the predictive text horizon. <laughs> Uh, where we all send SMSs back and forth to each other and they all begin to sound the same because we're all using the the words that are inserted by... That, that is a very good analogy. In fact, it's not an analogy. That is that, exactly. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, guys, I'd like to very much uh, thank you for this interesting conversation. I have so many takeaways from this. I think I'll, I'll need to stick them on an email and not a bad idea to... to summarize for people and hey guess what there's technology for doing that too so thanks very much for your time i i hope i certainly learned some things today i hope people listening to this learned some things today and hopefully we'll see you again on the next episode of credit shift thank you again thank you very much thanks for joining us for that amazing conversation and remember to subscribe so you don't miss any of these future leaders talking about the changes in the credit and collections business. We'll also be pushing out weekly updates so that you get all the news as it happens in the industry. And also, why not drop into webio.com and see what we're doing these days. 